Good morning, church family. All right, well, we're going to continue our study in the book of Proverbs, and this morning we're going to look at chapter 3. Um, we're not going to look at all 35 verses. We're going to focus in on verses 1 to 12. So if you're not there already, you'll want to turn in your Bible to Proverbs chapter 3. And if you are using the Pew Bible, if you don't have a Bible, you can find one in the Pew in front of you, and you can find Proverbs 3 on page 528. Page 528. So every human being on the planet lives all of their lives, like all of our, each of us, each of us lives our lives before the face of God. To use a fancy Latin phrase, quorum Deo. Okay, before God, before his face, he sees it all, he knows it all. That without the grace of Jesus, is a threatening reality because we're sinful and guilty and he's a just and holy judge. He's seen it all. He knows it all. Every sinful desire, every sinful thought, word, action, every sinful inaction, like when we should have loved and we didn't selfishly. And that's exactly why Jesus came to die for all of our shameful sin that we have done in the dark and plenty of it out in, in the open as well. So we've all lived out our prideful selfishness. It's natural to us. We all want my will to be done naturally. We get angry. We get self-pitying when our will isn't done. We lash out or we lick our wounds. We wish God would be a useful tool in our hands. Like we wish God would say, your will be done on earth as it is in your mind. That's what we would like God to do, naturally. We want to be God. We want God in the world to revolve around us, to orbit around us. But rather than just, I probably shouldn't do this, but like balling up this world like a piece of you know, ruined sketch paper and starting again, Jesus came to bear our blame and pay our debt. All forgiveness is costly, right? Somebody sins against you, two options. You either make them pay or you're gonna have to pay. Forgiveness is costly. So God can't just sweep our sin under the rug of the universe, it's gotta be paid for. So he sends Jesus to pay our debt who bore the Father's judgment against our sin. Remember, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The answer to that is so that he would never forsake you and me if we trust in him. He was forsaken so that we would never be forsaken. So if you've turned from your sin, trusted in Jesus as Savior and Lord, then picture this. The Father's face the face of God. Okay, does he have a literal face? No, but like, this is really an important biblical metaphor that runs all the way through. The Lord bless you and keep you, make his face to shine upon you, right? So picture the Father's face shining with pleasure, lighting the path to him. 
Okay, you're looking at him. His face is shining, and his shining face is lighting the path. So if you're in Christ, he's smiling. That's justification. Like we're already accepted. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You are a beloved, adopted son or daughter. So yeah, there's clouds in this life. It's often like trying to see through those glass blocks, you know, those glass blocks, you know, a bathroom window or the basement windows. Like it's kind of oftentimes hard to see, but his loving face is lighting the way, almost like a sunset that comes down and hits the water. It like makes this golden shimmering path, right? You've been on the beach, you've seen a sunrise or a sunset, and it, and it does that. If we walk that path to the light, to him, warmed by the light of his face, we will make it home to him, and we will see him face to face, and we will be completely changed, we'll be glorified. So, and we're going to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. You live, if you're a Christian, you live between the smile that was won for Jesus on the cross of justification and the coming smile that you will see face to face of well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. And that changes everything in between. Anybody interested in that? Okay. That is actually what our passage is all about this morning. How to wisely walk the path between justification and glorification, between adoption and finally coming home. Making it home. So this is like really important because there's lots of, you know, toils and snares and trouble and darkness and clouds and mess between these poles, right? Between these two smiles, justification and glorification. So if I was to summarize our passage in one sentence, put it this way. Brothers and sisters, let's humbly and wholeheartedly trust in Yahweh and he will direct and bless our paths. Okay? So let's humbly and wholeheartedly trust in our great God, and he will direct and bless our paths. So we unavoidably live all of our life before the face of God. Every human being does, right? Quorum Deo. But as Christians, we should wholeheartedly and intentionally want to live all of our lives before the face of God. Like we want his help. We want to follow his path, the path that's lit up by his face, right? We don't want to run off into the darkness and do our own thing, go our own way. Yes, we're prone to wander and, you know, go astray and whatever else, but we should want to trust in him all the way home. No compartmentalization, you know, hey, I'm one way on Sunday, the other way at work. No, 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 no. Integrity. 
where this wholehearted discipleship has found its way into every nook and cranny of life. There's wholeness and consistency and coherence, no fragmentation or disintegration. That's the opposite of integrity, right? So all of our thinking and knowing, all of our desiring and being and feeling, all of our doing and saying, all before the face of God, all by his strength and wisdom, all for his glory, all the way home. Okay? Like, that's what this morning is all about. That's what Proverbs 3 is all about. This wholehearted, holistic discipleship. Okay? So, four points. First point, God's heart in calling for ours. God's heart in calling for our heart. He wants all of our heart. He wants all of it. So, Let's see his heart in calling for ours. Verses 1 to 4. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. That last one's pretty important, like if you're tracking. If you've got length of days and years of life without peace, that would be a curse. You know, there's been a few movies, like I think one of the, uh, what is it, um, Indiana Jones, <laughs> that guy that found the Holy Grail, and it's just like a curse, because he's just like stuck in this room, you know, wasting away, but not really, because he's going to live for, anybody with me? This was a while ago. Okay. There's other examples, I'll let you talk about that at community group. Okay, so, <laughs> peace, they will add to you. So that's really, really important component, along with length of days and years of life. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Don't let them away. Don't let them leave you. Write them on the tablet of your heart so you will find favor and good success or esteem, repute in the sight of God and man. So, verse 1, cling to the wise teaching. Verse 2, you'll be blessed. Verse 3, cling to wise living and you will be blessed. Because most likely that's actually our steadfast love and faithfulness. Certainly our steadfast love and faithfulness isn't disconnected from God's, okay? We love because he first loved us. But let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Don't, don't leave that. Bind it around your neck, and you'll find good favor with God and man because you'll be living out that love and faithfulness among other people. Everybody tracking with me? Just so you see why, I think that's why it's horizontal there. So, big picture, cling to the wise teaching, you'll be blessed. Cling to wise living, you'll be blessed. So, you know, in Proverbs here, we talked about this in previous weeks. Um, this was originally written, a father to a son. So we should note, you know, especially those of us who are parents, that the teaching of Christian parents should echo, it should be built on, it should amplify the teaching and instruction of the Lord. So the lowercase T, Torah, of parents, Christian parents, should be a teaching post for the capital T, Torah, of Yahweh. It's like Deuteronomy 6 in action, right? These words should be on your heart, parents, and talk about them. Diligently teach them to your kids. Connect the dots of all of life to the supremacy of God. Love him with all your heart. Love your neighbor as yourself. But not all of us are parents, and 
you know, there's different seasons of life and stages and so forth. The more foundational way we should all hear this passage is as a word from our Heavenly Father to us as His children. And there's really clear, like, rationale for doing that because in Hebrews 12, one of our sections in our passage is quoted and it's spoken in Hebrews 12 to the whole church. So this is not just for young boys. This is for all of the sons and daughters of God, these commands. So all these commands should be heard in that secure, loving atmosphere of blood-bought covenantal adoption. My son, my daughter, listen. So if you've trusted in Jesus, his work on the cross for forgiveness and reconciliation with God, listen to how Ray Ortland frames these verses here. He says, He chose us because he loves us, and now he's coaching us in how we can be fully alive for his glory. Do we have that one? Maybe not. Okay, so he chose us because he loves us, and now he's coaching us in how we can be fully alive for his glory. My son. Okay? So yes, cling to wisdom and be blessed But even more fundamentally, do you see the heart of God in these verses? He doesn't just command us like an angry dictator, like, do this because I said so. If anybody in the universe has the right to to reason that way, it's God, right? He gives us reasons that make it clear that he wants what's best for us. He wants to help us and bless us. He has plans to help us, not to harm us, to give us a future and a hope. So you see it there? Don't forget. Let your heart keep. Why? Because I want to give you length of days and peace. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on your heart. Why? So you'll find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. I want to bless you. So the structure of the relationship here is not, here are the rules if you want to become my son or daughter. No, son or daughter comes by grace through repenting and believing, being adopted into the family of faith. The structure of the relationship is, now that you are my son or daughter, trust me and follow me for your good. Okay? My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. That word translated keep certainly means to obey, but it can also mean to protect or guard those commandments. Next week, Eugene's going to preach on chapter 4, and you know in 423 it says, guard your heart, for from it flow, you know, it flows all of life. It's the same word as keep here. Okay, so the point is, Don't let lies come in that would hoodwink you, deceive you into thinking that God's commands are harsh, that he's a harsh taskmaster or a celestial killjoy. No, that's a lie from Satan. He sold it to Adam and Eve. It's on the lips of every idol. Every God competitor says, ooh, that's going to be lost if you go with him, if you trust him. Trust me. So we need to actually guard the commands of God. We need like a spiritual security system 
in our soul that goes off when those kinds of lies start trying to break in and steal our joy or sow doubt that we would not trust in the Lord with our, our whole, all of our heart. Because those lies, those idols would want to steal our joy, our peace, our trust, and, you know, the it should go off in our souls like liar, liar, thief, intruder. His commands are for our good always. So let your heart keep, protect those commandments and God's heart that's underneath them. So again, we see this pattern. His commands are for our good always. Again, in verses three and four, so you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Exhibit A, does that sound familiar? Find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Exhibit A, the Lord Jesus, when he was 12. Do you remember? His parents accidentally left him. (laughs) The caravan left, and they're like, oh, wait a second. Where is Jesus? And he was back in the temple, right? He's listening to, he's interacting with the teachers over the Torah of Yahweh, and that episode closes with, in Luke 2, 52, and Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature in favor with God and man. Proverbs 3, 4, God making good on that in the life of his son. And he's calling us now to follow Jesus on the path of wisdom for our good. This life is a marathon of faith, a marathon race of faith. And the heart of our passage is, to, is how do we run? How do we run this race? And the heart of this passage is in verses 5 to 8. So let's look secondly at that, the heart of it all, verses 5 to 8. This is the center of this chapter. It's the heart of it all. And it has to do with our hearts as well. So verse 5, trust in Yahweh. That's his name. Lord is a title. Okay, so capital L-O-R-D is is translating Yahweh, the covenantal name of God. Trust in Yahweh with all your heart. And do not lean, do not rely on, don't trust in your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear Yahweh. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, right? Beginning of wisdom. And turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. So just want you to see what's going on here, kind of big picture. Notice that there are positive commands, right? Trust in Yahweh with all your heart. Um, acknowledge him in all your ways, verse 6. You see it there? Fear Yahweh, verse 7. So those are all positive commands, right? There you go. Trust in Yahweh, acknowledge him, fear him. This acknowledging him, it literally says to know him. So know him in all your ways. This is the goal of the new covenant, right? They'll all know me because the law is not going to be written out there on tablets of stone. It's going to be written on the heart. And this is more than merely just having information in your head, more than merely acknowledging God in some sort of token sort of way. It's actually relational knowledge. It's fellowship. It's communion with God. In all your ways, 
live it quorum Deo. Live it out, live your life out before the face of God. You want him to lead and guide you through every aspect, nook, and cranny of life. So acknowledge him is to recognize his rights and his authority in your life and his wisdom and his goodness so that he's the one directing your steps, your paths. Fear Yahweh, verse 7. We talked about this in previous weeks, this humble reverence and worship. He's God, we're not. So what happens when this goes haywire, Proverbs 29, 25, the fear of man lays a snare. If that's what governs us, like I'm afraid of what they're going to think, that lays a snare. But whoever trusts in Yahweh is safe because trusting and fearing are organically connected. So don't fear people. Fear God. Worship him. He's God. You're not. Trust in him and you'll be safe on his path. There's also negative prohibitions, right? Do not lean on your own understanding. Be not wise in your own eyes. Turn away from evil, right? So don't lean on your own understanding. Maybe that's obvious, but listen to a parallel passage in Proverbs 28, 26. Whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool. But he who walks in wisdom trusting in the Lord's mind and wisdom, will be delivered. That second negative prohibition, do not be wise in your own eyes. Again, he's God, you're not. Don't think too highly of yourself. In fact, we can look down at the end of chapter 3 in Proverbs and see a parallel. This whole be not wise in your own eyes. Look down at verse 34. Toward the scorners, he is scornful, but to the humble, he gives favor. So, Old Testament was written in Hebrew, mostly, a little bit of Aramaic, but Hebrew mostly. It was translated into Greek. That's called the Septuagint. And, and in a lot of places, you can see in the New Testament, written in Greek, dependence on the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Why am I mentioning all this? Point is... Verse 34 is quoted twice in the New Testament. And here's what it sounds like. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Okay, 1 Peter 5, James 4. Toward the scorners, the proud, he is scornful. He opposes them, but he gives grace to the humble. So don't be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord. Turn away from evil which is the next negative prohibition, right? Turn away from evil. Positive and negative, two ways of saying the same thing. Trusting in, relying on the Lord is the head side, not leaning on your own understanding is the tail side. Two sides of the same coin, right? Turning away from evil, following the Lord's path of wisdom. And then there are benefits, blessings, right? So you have the positive commands, you have the negative prohibitions, and then you have benefits and blessings. So look at verse 6. He will make your path straight. I mean, who else do you want guiding your paths? We are in enemy territory. Like, life is hard and dangerous. But like Hebrews 12 says, we have a founder and perfecter of our faith. We have a captain, a, a pioneer, a forerunner, that we can follow. 
It'd be like being in enemy territory and having the Navy SEAL of all Navy SEALs. Or you as a private, you can just trust your own intuition. You know, you've never even been in this territory and you've got the Navy SEAL of all Navy SEALs who's, you know, like knows this territory like the back of his hand. Who are you going to trust? We have a captain of our souls. Let's trust him. He will make our paths straight. Another benefit, another blessing. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Verse 8. So is this promising physical health? Well, it's complicated. Because we might kind of quickly just like, well, I'm sure it's spiritual blessings, right? Uh, Mainly. But remember Psalm 32? Actually, I'm going to get out of of order with the slides that I gave, so I probably shouldn't go to Psalm 32 just yet. Listen Listen to a couple Proverbs first. Proverbs 14, 30. A tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. Is that just spiritual? Or can there also be some physical manifestations of that? Proverbs 17, 22, a joyful heart is good medicine, but a crushed spirit dries up the bones. How about anxiety? Is that just a physical thing? Or does it have physical, what did I just say? Is that just a spiritual thing? Sorry. Or does it have physical manifestations? Psalm 32, it's probably David talking about the sin with Bathsheba and him not owning it and repenting. And he says, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, which is he was hiding his sin, he was living deceitfully, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you. And I didn't cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. So ultimately, sin is a soul sickness, right? It destroys us, and it can certainly manifest in physical sickness and suffering. We're not talking about Job's friends and that whole equation. But turning from sin and trusting in the Lord is the path to healing, like holistically, ultimately toward comprehensive healing and shalom in the new heavens and the new earth. So yeah, we're still going to decay and die. Our bodies are going to waste away, but redemption is aimed at full restoration and wholeness and well-being, total shalom. So the healings that Jesus did on earth when he was here, they weren't parlor tricks trying to impress people. It was the breaking in of the future. The wholeness of the future was breaking in. It was, it was like a preview of coming attractions. Jesus came as the great physician to heal us from the inside out fully and completely, but he did heal as evidence of who he was and what he came to do. Luke 5.31, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So if sin and the fall was the result of leaning on our own understanding, being wise in our own eyes, then trusting in the Lord with all of our heart, knowing him, 
acknowledging him, fearing him, turning away from evil is the path to renewal and healing and restoration, right? Right? Everybody with me? Okay. All right, so step back. This point number two is the, the biggest point of the whole thing. Like I said, it's the heart of it all. But let's just step back. Like, what is being said here in verses five to eight? There's a lot being said there. How would we summarize it? This is a call to go all in with God. On the daily, wholehearted discipleship. Like, put all your eggs in one basket. Put all your chips, move all your chips over to the Jesus square. No hedging your bets. Stake it all on God. Bet the farm. Burn the ships. Like, multiply the metaphors. I don't know. If God lets us down, we're doomed. He won't let us down. Wholehearted discipleship that God is calling us to here. This trust in the Lord, it's, I love the summary by um, commentator Bruce Waltke. Entire, exclusive, exhaustive. Entire, all your heart. Exclusive, he's the only Lord. Exhaustive, all your ways. So with all your heart to the depth, the core of who we are, in all your ways, breadth, all aspects of life, right? A.W. Tozer said it like this, pseudo-faith always arranges a way out to serve in case God fails it. Real faith knows only one way and gladly allows itself to be stripped of any second way or makeshift substitutes. For true faith, it is either God or total collapse. And not since Adam stood up on the earth has God failed a single man or woman who trusted him. So this is a call, no other gods before me. Love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. A double-minded man or woman is unstable in all he does. Like, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity toward God? These are just parallel passages that we read elsewhere. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. So God is saying, I want your whole heart, no more half-heartedness, no more wishy-washiness, like, where is there some wishy-washiness? Let's, like, give that to the Lord. Own it. Help me. All in. No half-heartedness. No more limping between two opinions, if you think of that story of Elijah with the prophets of Baal. Are we devoted or are we divided? Maybe we need to repent of dividedness and seek wisdom and grace for integrity and wholeness. So it's been, like, a long, long time since I gave this illustration, but in poets, I think it was in Poets and Prophets, in seminary, like a long time ago, 25 years ago or something like that, Dr. Willem van Gemmeren, we're doing some devotional stuff at the beginning of each class from Psalm 119, and there's a word in Hebrew, tam, tamim. And he says, what is tam? He was from the Netherlands. Um, and he said something like, a tomato is a tomato is a tomato. What are you talking about? If you cut into a tomato, no matter where you cut into that tomato, you get a tomato. So Tom is wherever you cut into the life of a Christian, you find 
a Christian. Not perfect, but genuinely desiring to trust in the Lord with all your heart in every aspect of life. It's a call to trust in the Lord. So if it's in your job, maybe it's a job you don't like. Help me trust in you with all my heart. A marriage you don't like, help me trust in you with all my heart. A financial situation you don't like, trust in the Lord with all your heart. It means we don't ignore his commands when they seem hard or unrealistic. It's when we, it's the, it's when we don't let ourselves believe that we are the exception. You know what I'm talking about? Like there are certain challenges and sins where we want to justify rather than repent. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 is true. No temptation has overtaken you except that which is common to man as God is faithful. He'll always open a way of escape. But I think sometimes we think, well, yeah, but my situation is unique. So certainly with money, we'll talk about that in a minute because that's where the passage goes. When life doesn't go as we'd hoped, which live long enough, it's gonna happen for all of us. There's gonna be loss, there's gonna be unanswered prayers. Trust in the Lord with your work, you know, ethical in integrity, right? Find a Christian in business dealings, regardless of what industry norms are, as far as cutting corners and whatever else. How about this as an application? This is one to ponder, I think. Oh, I know. Um, when we get manipulative, we are leaning on our own understanding. We're taking matters into our own hands. Flattery is manipulative. Bullying is manipulative. Nagging is manipulative. Browbeating is manipulative. Passive-aggressive is being manipulative. So in these nooks and crannies of life, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Okay, take a breath. I'll, I'll kind of back off for a second there. How about this? I, I'm just trying to give you an idea of how pervasive this is because it's all of life, right? Have you ever trusted in your vacation? Okay, I'm the only one. Well, I'll just go ahead and confess here then. Um, have you ever like been overloaded, overloaded, and you look forward to vacation and then... What happens? Somebody gets sick, you know, you're disappointed, crummy weather, family strife, the car breaks down, blah, blah, blah. Do you see what I'm saying? Vacation is a good gift, but if you put your trust in it, it can break your heart. That's maybe a silly example, but you can see what I mean. Like, it's so easy to trust in other things. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And go think about more examples and discuss them in your community groups. Bottom line, does God, does his word, have authority over my thinking. Like if we only obey where we agree, where it's easier, that's not obedience. Like we are the Lord then. Like I'm the Lord. If I want God and his wisdom and his ways to conform to me, like 
Of course we're happy to comply when those things line up. So what do we do when God's will and ways go against the grain of our thoughts and desires? Who's going to be God? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Wholehearted discipleship. Now, two realms, and man, I'm going to need to go quick here. Two realms of application, stewardship and discipline. Okay, point number three is going to be stewardship. Point number four, discipline. So look at verses 9 and 10 for the stewardship aspect. Honor Yahweh with your wealth. Like, don't rely on it as your source of security and identity and so forth. Honor Yahweh with your wealth, wealth and, and the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. This is one applicational context for working out the trust of three, five, and six. So do this quickly because we may have a, a whole week on what the Proverbs say about money. But whose honor is your money serving? Honor Yahweh with your wealth. So wisdom uses wealth to help people think more of God rather than thinking more of us. We are not God. We shouldn't think too highly of ourselves. We're not the weighty, worthy ones. And then we relegate God. He's lightweight and peripheral. So we dare not trivialize God, patronize God, peripheralize God, minimize God, belittle God. We should honor God with and from our wealth. It all comes from him. It all belongs to him. He's the one who has the right to determine how it's used. Ray Ortland summarizes it well. He says, how can wise people be tight-fisted? God, our Father, is sharing his resources with us to expand the family business, the gospel enterprise. He's entrusting into our care his own money, and we are investing his funds for his greater glory in the world today. He's made us his investment brokers. Our giving to the Lord can be like a tip thrown on the table. As God looks at your financial priorities, should he consider himself honored or slighted. Somebody gets the honor of first place in your monthly budget. So the Lord knows your heart. The Lord has been wonderfully faithful here. This is not like, you know, the budget's struggling. You guys, I'm going to beat you with a stick. No. Actually, we're doing fine. But only God knows your heart. That's the bigger issue, is all of us, each and every one of us, wholehearted discipleship, honoring God with our wealth. Now, it seems here that trusting God with our wealth and honor, or, or, and honoring him with it will lead infallibly to greater wealth. So does piety bring prosperity? Is this the prosperity gospel? Health and wealth for the children of the king? You know, length of days and years of life, favor and good success, barns filled with plenty and vats bursting with wine, riches and honor? No, this is not the prosperity gospel. That's no gospel at all. The prosperity gospel uses God like a genie because health and wealth are actually the true gods. If religion pays, by all means, buy religion. That's materialism in Sunday clothes, right? So the Bible doesn't affirm that, you know, kind of name it and claim it stuff. Otherwise, Jesus must not have had enough faith because he was peasant and homeless. So Proverbs are generalizations that are true. God provides for his people who trust in him. But not every nuance and qualifier is present with each and every proverb. Okay, Even Proverbs contains qualifiers and nuances. For instance, let's give you two quick ones. 11.28, whoever trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like a green leaf. 
So actually, the righteous might not have as much as some of these people trusting in their riches, but they're going to actually flourish spiritually. So that's an important qualifier, nuance. Or Proverbs 28, 25, a greedy man stirs up strife, but the one who trusts in the Lord will be enriched. And that seems to be not just financially, monetarily speaking. So we need to hustle along here. But the point is, honor the Lord with your wealth. It comes from him. It is his to guide us by his wisdom to use for his honor and the good of others. You could ponder Matthew 6, 19 to 33 um, as an example of living this wisdom out. We'll just leave that for another time. Okay, last point, trust and discipline. So trust in the Lord with all your heart. That's the heart of things, verses 5 to 8. And then it gets worked out in wealth and in discipline. And so this is the last point, trust and discipline, um, verses 11 and 12. My son, do not despise Yahweh's discipline or be weary of his reproof, for Yahweh reproves him whom he loves as a father of the son in whom he delights. So you remember the passage Eugene read in Hebrews 12? This is both corrective discipline, like we make mistakes and God It's kind of like a divine spanking (laughs) to get our attention. But this is also wider than that. If you're going to run a half marathon, what do you need to do? What's the word? Train. Train. You're training. You're disciplining yourself. So it's actually both and. Okay? That's in view in Hebrews 12. It's also in view here. So both of those things come through pain, right? But both of those things have a good purpose, So listen to these verses in in Psalm 119. Again, this is God's loving, severe mercy, grow through pain, correction and discipline. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Verse 71, it's good for me that I was afflicted that I might learn your statutes. Verse 75, I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. So, Again, for those who are in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. There is nothing left but love. Ray Ortland writes, your sufferings are not evidence against you, nor are they evidence against God. It's the opposite. Your sufferings are proof that God, your Father, cherishes you. To be left alone and not corrected would be illegitimacy. No, he loves us enough to keep working on us and molding and shaping us according to his loving wisdom. We live in a fallen world. We are going to suffer. And I'm going to skip that illustration. Okay, so let me just close with this. It's an extended quote from C.S. Lewis, but I think it'll summarize and wrap things up well here, okay? So in mere Christianity, maybe some of you are familiar with this, but this is just a powerful quote. So follow along. And again, follow along for the sake of your own heart here. So in Mere Christianity, he writes, as a, as a great Christian writer pointed out, every father is pleased at the baby's first attempt to walk. No father would be satisfied with anything less than a firm, free, manly walk in a grown-up son. In the same way, he said, God is easy to please, but hard to satisfy. 
The practical upshot of, the, of, of it is this. On the one hand, God's demand for perfection need not discourage you in the least in your present attempts or failures. Each time you fall, he will pick you up again. On the other hand, you must realize from the outset that the goal toward which he's beginning to guide you is absolute perfection, and no power in the whole universe can prevent him from taking you to that goal. That is what you are in for. And it's very important to realize that if, realize that. If we do not, then we are very likely to start pulling back and resisting him after a certain point. But the question is not what we intended ourselves to be, what we intended ourselves to be, but what he intended us to be when he made us. That is why we must not be surprised if we are in for a rough time. When a man turns to Christ and seems to be getting on pretty well, in, a sense that, in the sense that some of his bad habits are now corrected, he often feels that it would now be natural if things went fairly smoothly. When trouble comes along, illnesses, money troubles, new kinds of temptation, he's disappointed. These things he feels might have been necessary to rouse him and make him repent in his bad old days, but why now? Because God is forcing him on or up to a higher level, putting him into situations where he will have to be very much braver or more patient or more loving than he ever dreamed of being before. It seems to us all unnecessary, but that's because we have not yet had the slightest notion of the tremendous thing he means to make of us. Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he's building a quite different house from the one you thought of throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage. But he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. The command to be perfect is not idealistic gas, nor is it a command to do the impossible. He's going to make us into creatures that can obey that command. He will make the feeblest and filthy of us into a god or goddess. Okay, like glorified beings is what he means. Dazzling, radiant, immortal creatures pulsating all through with such energy and joy and wisdom and love as we cannot now imagine a bright stainless mirror which reflects back to God perfectly, though of course on a smaller scale, his own boundless power and delight and goodness. The process will be long and in parts very painful, but that is what we are in for. Nothing less, he meant what he said. Change the metaphor. Sorry, hang in there problem of pain, he said a similar thing. I just think this is really helpful illustration. He writes, we are not metaphorically, but in very truth, a divine work of art. Remember Chris read Ephesians 2? We are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. We are a divine work of art, something that God is making, and therefore something with which he will not be satisfied until he has a certain character. Here again, we come up against what I've called the intolerable compliment. Over a sketch made idly to amuse a child, an artist may not take much trouble. He may be content to let it go, even though it's not exactly as he meant it to be. But over his magnum opus, the great picture of his life, the work which he loves, he will take endless trouble and would doubtless thereby give endless trouble to the picture if it were sentient, if it were conscious. And One can imagine a sentient picture after being rubbed and scraped and recommenced for the tenth time, wishing that it were only a thumbnail sketch whose making was over in a minute. 
In the same way, it is natural for us to wish that God had designed for us a less glorious and less arduous destiny. But then we are wishing not for more love, but for less. Discipline does not mean God hates you. It means he loves you. And yet it often leads us to hate him. Even if for a time we doubt, we distrust, we're suspicious, we're skeptical, we're cynical. We need these words of wisdom from Proverbs 3, from Hebrews 12. We need to trust Yahweh, the artist, the home remodeler with all our heart in and through discipline. He loves us too much to leave us alone in our sin and in our folly. There is no malice, there's no condemnation in this discipline at all. It is loving training. So there's going to be correction, there's going to be reproof. It's all remedial, all intended to restore us and build us up. There's nothing vindictive, retaliatory, malicious, vengeful at all in any of our pain. So let's not fight. Did you catch the language? Don't despise discipline. That's when we get angry. Or be weary. That's when we get discouraged, depressed, and we want to throw, throw in the towel and throw up our hands. No fight. Sorry, over here. No flight. No anger and rage. Despise. No give up and despair. Be weary. If you do, the discipline won't do its good work. So run to him and fight off those lies. Don't despise, reject, resent God's discipline or be weary and shrink away from him. He wants our hearts, all of them. He wants our will. He wholeheartedly has given us everything in his son. He's after our wholehearted trust in every part of our lives so that he can give us everything. Let's pray. Lord, we believe, help our unbelief and help us to willingly, in faith, surrender all to you with our whole heart in all our ways. In Jesus' name, amen.